This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This is episode 96. My guest this week is Kit DeWall. She was born in Birmingham to an Irish mother who was a childminder and foster carer and a Caribbean father. She worked for 15 years in criminal and family law, was a magistrate for several years, and sits on adoption panels. She used to advise social services on the care of foster children and has written training manuals on adoption, foster care, and judgecraft for members of the judiciary. Her writing has received numerous awards, including the Bridgeport Flash Fiction Prize in 2014 and 2015, and the SI Leeds Literary Reader's Choice Prize in 2014, and the Cary Group Irish Novel of the Year. Her first novel, My Name is Leon, was published in 2016, and her second novel, The Trick to Time, is now out in the UK. I am so honored by speaking with Kit DeWall. I'm a little bit speechless in sharing this intro. She shared an article in The Guardian, which we discuss, about where are all the working class voices in British fiction, which sparked a movement, the British uh, working class writers movement. And it was such an honor to speak to her because I was so moved by her book, The Trick to Time, that I, I finished it reading it in an airport and I had to stop and close my eyes and put my hand over my heart. I was just knocked senseless, um, sort of sideways by the, the power of the book. And I want to give a little tip to all of you listening who are not in the UK, um, where the book is out now. It has not yet been released in the US or the rest of the world. However, um, whenever I have been presented with a book where I'm not willing to wait for the pub date in my own country, I do have a hot tip for you, which is that if you're dying to read The Trick to Time, which I know you will be after listening to this episode, you can just go to Amazon UK, order it there and have it shipped to you. In the US, the shipping is not that awful. If you're in other parts of the world like Australia, it's going to be a little bit more hefty to have it shipped to you, but it is possible to get it and you don't have to wait until the book is published in the rest of the world. So I offer you that because I think you're going to want that piece of news after hearing from Kit. Um, She's incredibly inspiring and it was really, really moving to speak to her. She fired me up on so many levels. As someone who came to writing a little bit later in life, um, as an antithesis to the you've got to have a hot debut novel out in your 20s or else there's no chance of becoming a serious writer who makes a difference. Um, she's blown that one right out of the water by starting in midlife. And just everything she had to say really left me so inspired the rest of the day and ever since then, honestly. So I'm really, really honored to present you with Kit DeWall. Hi, Kit. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really delighted to be here speaking to you. So I, as we said before we started, I just finished your book, The Trick to Time, and it is, it is stunning. It's really stunning. Oh, thank you. And I remembered, I haven't been fortunate enough to see you speak live, but I have had a number of readers. You are one of the writers where readers keep writing me going, when are you going to have Kit oh, DeWall on, sorry. please? Will you please have Kit DeWall on? And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is we've been talking a lot about like how people get 
published and how it's possible to get published and what the obstacles are to getting published. And I know that that was something really inspiring that people had was your take on the industry and what it means and and who's allowed to tell stories. And having read your story, I'm like, this is a gorgeous book. So I'm interested in what obstacles you have faced, because to me, that is like, I, as an agent, I receive that and I'm like, yes, please, and send me some more. So could you tell me a little bit of the story to getting, I know you, this is your second book, but the process of, of getting to publication and what that was like for you? Sure. So um, I didn't start writing till I was in my mid 40s. Uh, before that, I was working and living my life. And I'm not one of those people that always wanted to write as a child, that wrote stories and poems and always dreamt about being published. I, I read a great, great deal. Um, but I didn't really start writing till I had a little boy who wasn't well. I was stuck at home. I wasn't working. I was bored, rigid with the whole baby stuff. You know, it was just hard work. I just found it very, very hard work, although obviously love my children, but it was not enough for me. So I started writing and found it difficult, obviously, to be as good as I imagined I wanted to be or to have these great stories and great pictures in my head that I couldn't translate onto the page. And I started to write short stories. I wrote a script. I wrote two novels um, and submitted those and got an agent. But when the agent submitted my novel. Uh, my first novel, which was about 85,000 words. Um, she couldn't get it published because she said it's too literary to be a thriller and it's too much of a thriller to be literary, which I never got. But anyway, she said, go away, write another one. <laughs> the way you do, you know, you just pluck a... a, a just casually. Yeah, just write another book. That's okay. It's just 85,000 words. So I did write another book and she just said, I don't think that's very good. And she went on maternity leave. Hooray. And um, I got another agent, but I didn't get that other agent until I had written um, My Name is Leon. And when I wrote My Name is Leon, I very much had gone to a different place in writing that book. I'd written a book that I felt really passionate about. I mean, the other books were okay. You know, I was interested in them, obviously. Um, and I loved them and I still think they're good. But this one came from the gut. It came from um, my childhood. It came from my working life. It drew on my experience of um, training foster carers, training social workers, being mixed race. Um, but I really didn't think it had enough in it to wow people. I, I was really, really surprised that people sort of didn't want the book that I first wrote which I thought was fantastic and interesting, but did want this little book about a little boy and about one summer of his life. You know, that really surprised me. But it did grab people's attention and it went to auction. And it's, you know, it's been a huge success. So in as much as I have had success with this book and it is my first novel, that's great. And I know it, it looks probably like a, a quite a condensed version. But I was 55 when that book came out and when I signed my deal. So I'd been writing for 10 years and I'd entered a lot of competitions. I'd won a lot of competitions. I'd really 
really worked hard on the craft, really worked hard on the craft. You know, I'd uh, interrogated the books that I love, find out how has Graham Greene done that? How has Flaubert done that? How has Ishiguro done that? I really looked and looked and looked and tried. And I did a creative writing MA and went to hear lots of people speak. And I think that showed. I mean, I just think that I wouldn't have said, noticed an improvement in my writing, but there must have been one, which is why when I sent out My Name is Leon, it prob- you know didn't have much editing. I didn't do much editing on it. There was hardly any changes to make because I think when you work on your craft and take it very, very seriously as though, you know, you're a pianist or whatever, you know, you start off doing scales and you don't get to rack man enough until you're in your 50s or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It takes a long, long time, many hours of practice to get to where you want to be. Amazing. I think it shows because having, you know, opened the trick to time and read the first paragraph, I said, oh, this is gorgeous. And wow, it was, it really, it knocked me out. And they send, you know, these weird um, PDFs that you, you read, you know, as a reviewer and everyone listening will get to read a proper, beautiful book. But it was like a thing where you have to read it sideways and you, you kind of flip through the pen. And I was like, I don't even care. This book is completely <laughs> worth it. Yeah. Totally fine. I'd read it on a little tiny slip of paper. Yes. So I'm wondering, I want to talk about the trick to time because I, I, I know yes. that it's one of those that is not going to leave me. Um, and I can't talk about all of it on the show because you must read it because there is a lot to it and I don't want to spoil anything for anyone. But it's a, it's a beautiful story. And I also want to talk about the structure because something you said yeah. earlier that it wasn't literary enough to be a thriller and it wasn't thriller enough to be literary. I kind of see that as the sweet spot of a book. And I think you've accomplished that with this one. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. So how did that story first come to you? Because you published My Name is Leon in 2016, yeah. and now here we are in 2018, and you've got another one coming out. So that's amazing. Well, one of the useful things that happened to me is when they um, bought my first novel, it didn't come out for a year and a half. Um, you know, they do release it on a particular date, and that was a year and a half away. So I had a year and a half of luxury where there were no expectations on me, we didn't know Leon was going to be the big hit that it was. So, you know, I just knew that I'd sold it. I was paid enough money so that I didn't have to work. So I had this beautiful 18 months of writing my second novel with, you know, in just the most perfect circumstances. And the book came about really um, because I wanted to write something about love and the different types of love that there are. And I'd obviously explored that partially with Leon in that it was about brotherly love. It was about thwarted love between a man and a woman and also about the different kinds of love that you experience from different people that are fond of you, your tribe, if you like, or your people. Um, But then there is the romantic love. There's the love that, you know, people sing about. Most songs in the charts are about. Um, Paintings are about lots of literature about it's that thing that we yearn for that we get valentine's cards for that kind of thing and i really wanted to explore that i am an irish citizen so i really wanted to explore that side of my cultural heritage 
And where I set the trick to time in Wexford is where I'm from and where my mother is from and my, my father and my grandmother and my grandfather. And um, there is a beautiful, beautiful little town, seaside town called Kilmore Quay, which is where Mona is from. Mona's the protagonist in The Trick to Time. And, you know, I set it in this tiny, beautiful fishing village. And I can honestly say I don't know where the rest came from in as much as <laughs> she was very, very clear to me very early on. And once you have your main character and you know where she's from and you know what it's sort of going to be about, then I think the rest is, I mean, it's paradise, paradise coming up with the different characters and coming up with the plot. It's, it's really just what, what writers dream about. Absolutely. Did you have her, did she come to you? Because for those listening, you, you get to follow Mona both in as she's just turning 60 in one sort of line of the story. And then you also follow her as she's 20. So did she come to you first as the, the 60 year old self or the 20 year old self? She came to me as the 20 year old self, but I very much knew that because the 20 year old girl is set in 1974, I wanted to know her as an older woman. And interestingly, this is how vain I am. Um, it's the book sort of opens where she is three days, I think, before her 60th birthday. Right. And so I started writing, originally writing Mona as like an old woman. And I thought, hang on a minute, I'm 57. I'm nearly this woman's age. You know, she hasn't got a walking stick and grey hair. You know, she's a vibrant, uh, alive woman with life left to live. Um, and I sort of had to do that recalibration where you realise how old you are. You know, it, it took me by surprise, really. And I realised that who she was and where she might sit in time and where she sits in her own life at 60. She's not thinking, oh, you know, I'm an old lady, my life is done. She's thinking, hang on, I've got stuff left. I've got life to live. I want to be loved and I want to love someone. And that's where she she's not ready to hang up her gloves by any means she's ready to still be fighting life and so when I realized that was her at 59 and 363 days then that was really interesting to me because then I knew who she would be as a girl right yeah there's sort of callbacks too in the in the moments there's a whole thing with you know, she has this pixie haircut yes. in her 20s and then she's sort of pondering, should I cut my yes. hair again um, in the beginning of the book? And you can see these moments of, you know, things that have happened to her that have caused her to lose that 20-year-old yes. self, which I thought was so yes. moving. And, and, do, and does happen. You know, when, when we are, you know, as we age, uh, certainly, I mean, I'm a woman that's had the menopause, um, which is a very um, significant time in a woman's life where you are, you know, anthropologically speaking, you are saying goodbye to a type of motherhood, to the chance of giving birth to that um, period of your life where you're, and I'm using tile, and you're moving into this different time of your life where, I mean, my children are still very much dependent and everything, but you move into a time of your life where you can reassess now who you are and what you want. And you, well, for me anyway, and I can only really speak for myself, but you reconnect with the dreams you once had 
and the things that you may have forsaken because you've been caught up in the business of life. It, you know, you may not have children, but maybe you've been concentrating on your career. Maybe you've been looking after a parent. Maybe you've just had the other distractions of putting bread on the table. But then it comes to a point where you think, what do I, who really am I? What do I really want to do? You know, what does the gut tell me? And that's where Mona is in her life. She's not just content to be dressing dolls for the rest of her life because there's so much more to her. And she has so much more to give that she hasn't given uh, for many years. I think it's a beautiful moment because it is, it's like you see these points, you know, like in her 20s when she's sort of at the beginning of things and thinking, oh, here we have all these dreams and she's newlywed and, and exploring the future of her life. So I think that's one kind of experience. And then she's sort of looking back at, at 59 and as you said, 362 yes. days or 363 days and, and yes. saying, how did this yes. period of time happen up to this point? I thought it was just, it's almost to her, like it felt like it was, you know, six months or a year. And suddenly she realizes all these years yes. have gone by and she's been in this situation. But I love these moments, like she has a shop and her assistant, who she sort of depended on, has gotten another job. And these little things like that, how they can trigger looking at your life in a completely different way. Yes, absolutely. When her assistant leaves, she, uh, the assistant says to her, look, you're going to have to use the computer. You're going to have to. She's like, oh, no, you know, no, I can't do it. And the assistant's like, <laughs> yes, you can. And more or less says to her, you know, grab onto life, you know, just do it. You can do it. The assistant's so positive. And Mona has to address that, that, you know, she here's her choice now. She either gets a new assistant and never really embraces technology and her business, or she has a go. She has a go and she can do it. And it, it's in moments of her life where, you know, like having a haircut, like meeting somebody else where she thinks, hang on a minute, there is life to be lived. And if there is life to be lived, what have I missed? And do I want to carry on missing it? Yeah, which is a deep question that yes. I think everyone faces at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm wondering about the process of writing it because they are two distinct plots. And the thing that you've done, which I point out for everyone listening who's writing, is that even though the book is very much literary and you're exploring these characters really deeply, you still do that thing where you take us just in enough chapters in the 20-somethings life yeah. and then move back to the 60-somethings life, right? When yeah. you think, oh, what, what? You know, about something that's about to happen and then go back and you keep going back and forth in that way. And I was ignoring people who were around me. <laughs> I was on a plane coming back. I was threw the bags at my husband, said, you're going to have to leave me alone. I have to finish this book. And um, it works really well. And I think that I, I still come back to what you said at the beginning, like, why do we have these definitions and these strict rules around what certain kinds of books are supposed to be? Like, if you're doing a literary book that really explores characters, why can't you have elements of suspense? And I think that's maybe limitations yeah. in the publishing world. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's true. I think there are, you know, there's really strict gradations in the public publishing industry. And that is um, partly to do with um, genre fiction and what people expect. So if, for example, you like um, 
romance novels, then there are certain ingredients that a reader will expect. You know, they want a romance or they want a thwarted romance. If you are used to reading crime thrillers, then there are certain ingredients that your reader expects to see in the book. Maybe a murder, maybe a police investigation and so forth. And with literary uh, fiction, you are really expecting to have a character-driven plot. So almost the plot, the action, is subservient to the characters and the exploration of, you know, deep character. So I think when you introduce an element that might subvert that slightly or might be too interesting, too action, too plot-driven, I think uh, the publishing industry gets, you know, oh, who's going to read this? And if they do read it, are they going to be disappointed? It's a shame because I think there's such a lot of scope for crossover crossover fiction. And if you look at the classics particularly, the classics are riddled with books uh, that are crossover fiction. If you take one of my favourite novels, Madame Bovary, which is definitely, definitely literary fiction, and it's about a woman uh, a girl, actually, who gets married to a doctor and she goes to live in a very quiet, provincial French town and it's not enough for her. And she has an affair with somebody uh, with disastrous consequences. Now, there's such a lot of action in it. I mean, really, there's action all the way through. Her, you know, her marriage, her not getting on with her mother-in-law, her having these affairs, running up debts, getting chased, uh, getting snobbed by the town. You know, there's lots of action in it. But I think we're just more cautious these days about it and we want everything to sort of fit a particular mould. The structure for the... Uh, the I, I do read a lot of literary fiction, but I, I read quite widely, lots of other things too. And I was brought up on a very, very heavy diet of film because my father was obsessed with film, particularly the old black and white classics, film noir, and sort of all the films between, I'd say... 35 to 70 so we used to sit with him and watch films um every day i mean every single day or or, or all day usually on a saturday or sunday and my father would in, interrogate us about what was happening and look at this and look at the knife and make sure you see this and did you notice that and this is way before the days of press pause you know he was talking over the film so i think it was from that kind of presentation that i learned how to construct a book or construct suspense from watching films and I am also a real plotter I plot massively so the Leon and the, were both books that I plot on a spreadsheet so that it will say chapter one has to have this and then do this and then do that and then chapter two and once I've plotted it on sort of I don't know 10 or 12 pages on a grid I don't look at that again, and I will just write the book. But to begin with, I have to really, really know the story inside and out. And by doing that, you get to see what are the dead points. Where's the boring bits? Like if you've got five chapters and nothing seems to be happening, you're looking at those five chapters and analysing them before you've written them. Because the other thing that happens if you don't, for me anyway, if I don't plot, I write five chapters and I think, oh my God, they're crap. They're boring. <laughs> um, so I have to redo them. Well, doing a spreadsheet and having some kind of plot planning device stops you doing that, stops you wasting thousands and thousands of words just to realise that actually I could have condensed that into a paragraph. 
Oh, I want to hear more about this spreadsheet. Oh, yeah, my spreadsheets. This is, I have never, how did you, did you just say, I've got to have a spreadsheet? I'm fascinated. So in the first column, uh, there's a column and it will just say one and that's just the chapter Mm -hmm. heading. And obviously, to begin with, the spreadsheet looks absolutely awful. It's a thing of beauty by six months later. But to begin with, it's ugly. But I'll give you the six months later version. (laughs) So it will have the chapter headings on the left. And then in the next chapter, it would be uh, the next column. It would be very briefly say something like um, Mona leaves home. And then in the next column, it would be some significant detail that needs to appear in that chapter. So, for example, if she needs to have a precious key that her mom gave her and she needs to have that when she's 60, I need to plant, make sure I mention that key when she's five, for example. Um, And then in the final column, I have sometimes put a picture of a son. And what that means to me is that I have to remember to put the light and the love and the brightness and the humour into my books because sometimes they can be too sad or too dour or too heavy without the lightness. So I will sprinkle those little sun icons throughout the book to remind me a joke in or a funny scene or something bright to lift the book and to not actually have people sobbing their heart out throughout. Yeah, I, I, that is amazing. I have never heard of doing it this way. And it so you spend six months on this before writing the book. Easily six months, yeah. And when it's finished, it would probably be six or seven pages long and it would look like an Excel spreadsheet and I would I would know it off by heart. And so, for example, with Mona's story, which has two timelines, you could even say it has three timelines. It has her as a well, it has her in Ireland, has her in Birmingham, and then it has her as a, as an older woman. And so I would write the two stories entirely separately so that I don't mm. switch between chapter and chapter and chapter when I'm writing it. I write this past story as though there was no future story. And I write write the present day story as though there was no past. So it has to hang together. So for example, with The Trick to Time, if you lifted all of the past out of the story, you could read it as a whole story and it would satisfy you. There would be enough in it to understand. And if you lifted the present day narrative straight out of the book and only read that, it would be satisfying as an entire story. And then the skill, obviously, is mixing them together so that the past and the present resonate with one another and inform one another. Yeah, I wondered about that because they do feel so complete. So you've come up with each sort of story thread separately and then later think oh this is the point where I have to switch this is the point where I have to leave them and then I'll go back to the other one that came later that comes much later yes so they are written whole they are written completely you know without reference to the other one I would never interrupt the past narrative to write a chapter in the in the present so I completely commit to the past narrative then when it's finished, right, how do I cut this and sew it together? A bit like Mona does with her outfits. How do I sew this together to make it hang beautifully and to make it all look like one? Amazing. So I'm interested in terms of interrupted narratives. 
you spent 15 years in criminal and family law before uh-huh. coming to writing. And how, well, for one thing, how did you reach the point when you you wanted to make that change in your own narrative? What was the impulse that took you out of law and into writing? And do you find that that experience now informs your writing in a particular way? Yes. So I did, although I worked in family and criminal law, I was never a lawyer. Mm. Um, I go to university. I left school when I was 15. I didn't go to university till I was 52. So um, my work in criminal law was very much sort of learned on the hoof. You know, I learned it and I knew it very well. And I got to a very high level without being uh, an actual lawyer. Part of that job was to visit uh, criminals, usually in prison, but sometimes in, in the office, and they would talk to me about their stories. They would, so I, let's say they're charged with um, an assault. And I would say, okay, you know, you're, you're charged with assault. What's your story? Here's the evidence against you. What are you saying? And they would talk to me and I would have to translate that usually hours and hours of explanation, excuse, alibi, into some kind of narrative to give to the lawyers. And so... I very much became, without knowing, um, and somebody that could um, translate a, a lot of sort of verbal stuff and nonsense that jumped all over the place into some sort of coherent story that addressed certain aspects um, of evidence. And I, I didn't know I was doing that. I have to say it was just my job. You know, I just did it to earn money. Um, but when I adopted two children and uh, found myself unable to work full time and sitting at home and doing all the, you know, mommy things, which frankly, I didn't like, you know, mother and baby groups were not my thing at all. Um, And I love being with the children, but there was just many hours of the day when I was on my own or I was caring for the children where I found I had time to think about the next thing that I wanted to do. And as I say, because I read a lot and watched film. I expected, to be honest, to be able to write better than I did when I started. You know, when I started, I didn't think it was going to be so hard. I thought that I would have enough skill um, and enough knowledge, really, without doing some of the hard work that you need to do to become a craftsperson. But I did. I loved it. And I still love it. And it's the sort of, when you're a writer, you realise that, if you won all the lottery millions in the world that you would still be writing, you know, it's, it's, it's way beyond monetary value or have people read you. It's something much more primal than that. It's sort of a, a way, I, I, without even knowing it, that I always felt I had to express myself. That's so great. It's so great when you find that process. Yes, I agree completely. My my uh, daughter is uh, Native American. She's half Native American. And she um, has a love of horses that she's had since she was seven. And it's her thing. You know, it, it's not anything like that you could explain. It's like she's found her thing. She found it very, very early on. And it stayed with her and it probably stay with her for the rest of her life. And it's such a great thing when you find your joy 
whatever it is in cars it could be gardening it could be cooking it could be looking after your children but you find that thing that makes you feel alive and gives you a kind of purpose to your life and gives you a way in which you can express the deepest part of you it's so important definitely and I think that so many people who either find writing in a certain way like you have or have hoped to write early are are sort of thwarted in that goal yes and one of the things that has emerged more recently to my delight is the the working class writers movement in in the UK. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about that phenomenon, because you have worked on an anthology, right? Yes. Yes. So I um, was brought up in in the 70s, you know, six, I was born in 1960, brought up in the 70s in Birmingham, um, the child of two immigrant parents, an Irish and a Caribbean parent. And we lived, you know, we I, I would have said we weren't working class. I think we were below working class. We were very poor. Uh, we didn't have a lot, um, and, you know, life was tough. I have to say I was extremely happy. I had a happy childhood. But in monetary terms and in lots of other ways, it was a very difficult childhood as well. Um, and when I started to write, um, I wrote about, you know, the lives that I knew, and I had uh, the opportunity to give an interview to um, a newspaper over here called The Guardian, which is very well-read and very concerned with social issues, and I really made a throwaway comment, and it, the throwaway comment was, where are all the working class writers? And this seemed to be, I don't know, it sort of, sort of hit a nerve with people and it became very talked about. And I was asked to contribute um, an article to a newspaper about where are all the working class writers, so I wrote that. And then I was asked to contribute to an anthology about why is it so hard to be a working class writer and then um, the BBC asked me to do a documentary um, about working being a working class writer and what stands in our and it just seems to have snowballed madly fantastically into a proper movement and one of the things I wanted to do when I um, got published was to set up a prize I wanted to do a prize for working class literature but I realised that that really was only ever going to help one person. And I didn't want to help one person. I wanted to, it to be more than that. So I approached some of the very well-respected and very well-established writers in the UK that are from a working-class background. And I said, look, will you be in this anthology of working-class memoir? And there'll be 16 of us. And there'll be 16 unpublished writers that we will invite to submit their stories, their working class memoirs. And they'll be published for the first time alongside us and be given that help and that leg up and that hand that perhaps is all they need to get going and, and you know, to, to have to start their publishing career. And the absolute overwhelming, uh, you know, this is for no money. These are writers that get paid a lot of money and they're all going, yep, fine, great, yes, count me in. And they're all doing it for absolute pennies. Um, and it's going to be, it's, we, we crowdfunded it so that we could get lots of support and we could get lots of um, money to, to, to put, to get the book out and get it published. And it's, as we speak, it's at 97% full funding. So probably by the end of today, Amazing. we will get to 100,000, 100,000, 100%. 100%. 
Um, and we will have that book published hopefully by the end of the year. And for 16 brand new working class writers who just do not get the same chances, this is going to be fantastic. So instead of helping one person, we're able to help 16. And, it, you know, it is completely down to all of these very well respected writers who are giving their time and their money and their support for nothing. It's really fantastic. That's so inspiring. I think it is, there's something about writing as a career. I mean, I think the creative arts seem to function in a similar way where it it isn't seen in some ways as, as an investment. It's like, you know, if you go to school for to become a doctor or to become a lawyer or other such professions, um, it, it doesn't, it's sort of seen as, oh, well, you're going to make this fantastic salary. So of course, go ahead. But when people yeah. talk about wanting to be writers, there is this different <laughs> reaction that people have. And I always think that's such a shame because it's always the writing that carries the story of your time period forward. And Absolutely. why wouldn't you take that just as seriously? Yeah. And, and I mean, I think there are a few um, points to make, really. Uh, the first is that the creative arts are, you know, are, are definitely very, very difficult to get into and, and difficult to make money in. And so in some communities where your salary and your wage really matters, it doesn't just feed your children, it might pay the rent, it might uh, support other members of your family. If that's your family makeup, then you saying, well, I'm going to go and write and I might earn some money, but I might not. That's just seen as very irresponsible. And so writing becomes this thing that you do in your quiet time, you do in your spare time, you do it after your second or third job. How good are you going to be? How much energy have you got to put into that? And, and, and can you go and do a class? And can you afford £7 for a competition? You know, all of those things cost money. So what happens to working class writers is that that joy and that skill and that desire and that story gets squeezed into a smaller and smaller space. And that's the unfairness uh, aspect. And that's why we don't see a lot of working class writers writing and getting published because they simply can't get their story down on paper, get it to an agent, <clears throat> get it to a publisher as easily as people who can dedicate a lot of time, energy and money um, which you're more likely to have if you come from a middle-class background. And the second thing is that working-class writers are expected to regurgitate their story. So if you're a working-class writer, and let's say you come from an industrial town, and, you know, you come from uh, what you might call the projects, and, you know, you come from a marginalised community, what publishers expect to read when you submit your story is a version of your life or a version of a hard life, or a version of hardship. And maybe you want to write science fiction, history. Maybe you want to write non-fiction. Maybe you want to write about spacemen or vampires or the 20th century, uh, you know, 20th, 19th century, or you want to write Venice in the Renaissance. And those stories are not expected to come from working-class writers, and that's not fair because middle-class writers can write what they want. And working-class writers are expected to be constantly rehashing their own narrative to be taken seriously. And so that's something else that has to change, that working-class writers need to have the space and the right and the expectation that they're going to write about what they're going to write about, 
great if you talk about your own story. That's fantastic. But you shouldn't have to to be recognised as a writer. History is written by the victors. Winston Churchill said that. So history is written by the people that win, the winners in life. And the winners in life are not seen to be working class people. The winners in life are seen as being the people in power, the people that have money, the people that have status, the people that have a voice. And unless we, as working class writers, tell our stories and put the truth of our identity and the truth of our experience out there, we will always have our stories mediated by working cl- by middle class people or by other people, or we'll have what usually happens, middle class writers writing about the working class experience with absolutely no knowledge of it or making stupid mistakes or thinking this is what it feels like to be middle class and to be broke and to be hungry or to live on that uh, estate without really knowing um, what it's like. And the other thing that happens, of course, when you have middle class writers writing about the working experience is they never put in the joy. They never put in the beauty. They never put in the solidarity and the love and the friendship and the texture and the differences And all the beautiful things there are about being from the working classes that give you this empathy and give you this view of life, it always kind of, you know, um, someone shooting up in a back alley or some bloke beating his wife. And that's simply not the case of the working class experience because obviously, as in every class, there's great nuance and there's great differences between classes. But generally speaking, as working class writers... We're the only people that can tell those stories, and we should. Absolutely. And it's. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, that was a very long That was a perfect answer, and I think an important one, because I think it's true. You can't, if you're, if you're writing a story based on assumption, yes. it's not, it's not going to work. And it also, I mean, in some cases, if you're not putting any joy in it, it's almost like middle class or, or upper class people writing about their fear of what it would feel yes. like to them yes. to be in that experience. Absolutely. And, you know, it's like I, with my spreadsheet, come back to my spreadsheet, I have to remember to put the joy in because sometimes when we're telling stories, we forget the funny bits. You know, like, as I said to you before, my, my childhood was a difficult childhood in lots and lots of ways and certainly poor. But, my God, we laughed every day. And sometimes we laughed because that's all we had left. But the humour of the working class is the humour of people that have nothing. And the joy is very, very underestimated. It's that thing that keeps you going. It's that thing that um, you have, generally speaking, in common with other working class communities, that you can find the joy in what you're doing. And for a lot of people that look in on a working class life, all they see is the hardship and they don't see the love. Right. Oh, yes, I think that's so important because I think that I think that there's a lot of things that need to change yes. um, in terms of, you know, like you said, making it more accessible to even begin because we can, you know, I can sit here or the publishing industry can sit here and say, we would love to publish your books, but if society's structure makes it impossible for anyone to have the time or the resources or the space or the energy to write, then you're not going to get those books in the first place. So I think the changes have to begin on a wider scale. Absolutely. But at the very least, we, 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 I think we have to recognize that they're needed. Yes, I think obviously 
There is a lot um, that I'm saying here to working class writers about our responsibility to our people, to our tribe, to our communities, to tell the stories as they are, our stories and celebrate our identities. Um, but equally, it doesn't matter how well we're writing and how much we're writing if there aren't people to listen and there aren't people to publish. So um, it has to come from both sides, the responsibility that we have to, uh, to tell our stories and the responsibility that there is on the publishing industry to hear the stories. And when we hear the stories, to assume that there is a readership, because there is a readership out there. Uh, we aren't all wanting to read um, a certain type of narrative. There are people out there who don't buy books or don't engage with reading because they don't see their lives celebrated. They don't see themselves on the page. And there's that phrase that if you can't see it, you can't be it. So for children coming up, they need to see writers uh, celebrating who they are and ce celebrating their communities. But equally, the publishing industry needs to recognise that this world is made up of lots and lots of different communities and lots of communities that value literature and speak to those communities, publish the books that they need to read and publish the books by working class writers that are writing way outside of their own experience. And I think people reading those books, I think people listening who are readers, I think that a review and a, a, a sharing and saying this book, I loved this book, yes. is important to, to leave a review and say, yes, I want more of this. Yes. And this is a book that mattered to me. That means something because the publishing industry uh, needs to make money like anyone else, just like all of the writers. And if you say, yes, I will buy more of this, I want to see more of this, then that matters too. And I think it's just as important that readers support that so that the publishing industry is braver and picks more books yeah, like that. Absolutely, because what we're talking about is, is working class people seeing their voices and working class people telling their stories for themselves. However, there has never been a more important time for people to understand one another and for us to uh, investigate and appreciate and understand other people's lives. The world is in such a bad place at the moment. And one of the ways that we can get under the skin of other people and walk a mile in their shoes, rid of barriers, is by understanding how they tick. And there's no better vehicle than that, uh, than a book for that kind of thing. So it's not only for us to publish so that we see our lives, but also for other people to be enriched by our lives and to be enriched by the life of the other and to understand the life of the other. And there's lots and lots of things about other people's lives we don't agree with, but understanding and dialogue comes first so that we can perhaps turn the clock back from the brink of, of the sort of terrible things that we fear and and have a much more harmonious existence with the rest of the planet. Absolutely. Well, I couldn't I couldn't put it better than that. And um, I want to thank you so much for coming on and for talking about your beautiful book and for books in general. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, 
visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.